All right. I'm really excited. We, we do, as you can see here, have communion that will be coming after this message. And it just kind of turns out, wow, really loud here. You're not out there? It's okay. I'm just loud to myself. That's okay. I can accept it. You love it. I love that. I love hearing myself as loud as possible inside my ears. Um, <laughs> drown out the sound of other voices. Um, no, but it, it just so turns out it was kind of the, the flow of the weeks that communion would land today, but it turns out to be kind of the perfect week. Um, not only to end the psalms with a reflection on Christ and his sacrifice, but it, um, this psalm of all the psalms that we've looked at ends in a note of salvation, uh, in that kind of way that the Old Testament does sometimes, that shadowy anticipation of the hope that is to come, or that has come, in the person of Christ. So... Good afternoon, everyone. Good to see people back who've been away. Um, we've arrived, as Lindell said, at the final psalm of our series. This has been a long series. I, I should have that slide up there. It's been a while, but I really hope for you, as it has been for me, um, it, that it's been a really encouraging series. Uh, I want to thank my co, my co-preacher in it as well, Beck, um, which feels so long ago now. That's that sermon. So. Um, we've moved through so much, right? Periods of confidence and assurance, through anger and darkness, and now finally into new hope and trust. And as Lindell reminded us, um, following after Walter Brueggemann, we've been calling these movements orientation, disorientation, and new orientation. And it is my sincere hope that as we've spent time in each of these psalms, you've been encouraged to see the ways that they I guess, contain a language, right? An entire language for speaking with God and for speaking about his presence in our lives. Because I I think that for those of us who seek to follow God, who yearn to model our lives on Christ's love and righteousness, for those of us who proclaim the intimacy of God through the indwelling of his spirit, we are not limited in what we can say to him. The dialogue of faith is rich with praise and despair. It is full of hope and confusion. It is a daily conversation. It ranges over all things and all experiences, and it is never exhausted. Today's psalm reminds us that this daily conversation with God, uh, and I was thinking that's it's what hymn writers often call our walking with God, right? Our walk with God is one of intimate nearness. Our whole series, I think, has proclaimed this truth. The God that we speak with is a God who hears, and the God whom we walk with is our companion, even along dark roads. As Lindell has already so beautifully framed, it's God with us. So Psalm 91 is, I think, both very specific and universal. It's full of language that relates to something that is a very particular experience of trouble, but it's language that can extend to all of our own experience. And it is expressed, like many of the Psalms, as a confession, as a personal testimony of someone whose own experience makes their expression of faith authentic. So this is the opening of Psalm 91, which might be difficult to read in the intense brightness of this room, but I'll read it for you. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. 
So from verse 1 all the way to through uh, verse 13, this psalm is an extended assurance of God's trustworthiness. And I think these first two verses are beautiful. Often I feel like I should just preach on the first two verses of every psalm. Um, They're a beautiful statement of confidence. And it ends in the Hebrew as well as in the English on this word trust. In these two verses are combined the intimacy of faith, um, my refuge, my fortress, my God. But there's also the names of God that reveal his majesty and his transcendence. This is the Most High God, the Almighty God. In many ways, I think we should end here because this is the opening statement of confidence that contains everything else. God is powerful, God is almighty, and his presence is available to us as we travel into dangerous places. (coughs) Fear not, for I am with you. But I'm going to read a little bit more. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. Now these are words that are familiar to us, are they not? God as fortress and refuge. And this is, I think, one of the main images of this psalm. And if you're a person who remembers images, you can remember that one. God as a safe place. The God in whom we can hide and find relief. But as you can see, these verses here are not about staying in the refuge, right? They're not about staying in the safe place. But instead, they are about being safe even though the psalmist is on a journey through danger. We sing these words so often, um, they're abbreviated into this line, through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Do you know those lines? Wow. I'm impressed. Um, In the psalm, I think that we can imagine or understand these as very real dangers, right? So, And many of the commentaries that I read they were talking about a particular plague or pestilence that was around at the post-exilic moment, actual threats to physical life. But of course, they're also metaphoric dangers, right? They're threats to our spiritual world. Most of the dangers that are expressed here are the kinds which strike unseen, against which the strong are just as helpless as the weak. But in each case, as you can see, God is more than adequate. He is always there with what is needed to snatch his people up from the trap of evil, to cover and hide them from assault under his wings. Now for the Israelites, and I'm guessing, I'm curious if anyone has ever lived anywhere where this is the case, um, where travellers find themselves on roads where there is no civil order or police protection. Has anyone lived anywhere where that's the case? I think that this is... um, a metaphor that is quite remote to us, right? We have guided highways. The UK is just replete with yeah, um, bandits, right? Yeah. Um, 
that we have guarded highways, we have ordered society, and yet I think that we understand this nevertheless. The traveller is unhurt amidst the threat of day and the threat of night. Despite the chaos, God is a companion who makes safe passage possible. And do you see those first two images in verse 4? I really love this. God's protection is imagined as a mother bird, sheltering her young in the warmth of her wings, but also as the hard and unyielding confidence of shield and of armour. I love that God's nearness is expressed in such diverse ways. His might, but also his comfort, battle and rest. And we sang it already, right? The lion and the lamb. And there is a promise here, and I have to mention this. There's a promise here in verse 7, um, which you can't see here, but it's this idea of it will not come near you. And I don't know if you, like me, grew up in churches where people employed this verse in a particular way. Um, But I've heard it used as almost like a charm or an incantation, right? To you it will not come near, has been interpreted as if believers are spared from any danger because of the divine protection of God. Uh, I think this is really unhelpful. I think it's basically an entirely unhelpful way of understanding why we should be sure that God protects us. For one, I look at my own life, right? I've known danger, I've known fear, I've known loss. I think of Romans 8.28, which is another verse that is used in this way. God works for the good of those who love him. And then seven verses later, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The promise of goodness and love does not exclude the possibility of danger. Now, this is uh, Walter Brueggemann and another writer, William Bellinger, in their book on the Psalms, and they say this. Some contemporary readers will suggest that Psalm 91 promises that God will not allow any troubles to come on believers, and they may then read the psalm as unrealistic and naive. But two comments are in order. In Psalm 91, the divine refuge is in the face of considerable danger. And number two, the psalm is a poetic affirmation of God's trustworthiness. The psalm announces the theme of divine refuge and then carries out the theme with a list of life's dangers. God's protecting shadow comes in the midst of those dangers. I think this is so important, right? God and his protection is with us in the midst. That's why I've written in the midst there. I think this affirmation is one of the most powerful and striking and enduring and honestly perfect promises of Scripture. It's one of the fundamental assurances of hope that we have. It is God saying to us, yes, now, even in the mire, even in the very midst of troubles, I am with you. Yes, now, even in that surge of unbelief and doubt, I hear you. Yes, now, even in the darkness, I lead you. And it's the psalmist responding, right? Even in the midst of the troubles, you are with me. Even in my unbelief, you do hear me. Even in the darkness, you do lead me. Psalm 91 is not an unrealistic picture of a carefree life. It is an honest confession of someone who suffered, 
and who experience the nearness of God in their turmoil and their distress. Psalm 91 is at its core a call from a faithful person to a community of faithful people to trust God. Verse 9. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. So in these verses, again, God is thought of as a refuge, as a safe place. And again, we're asked to imagine a traveler on a journey. But now their protection is assured by a host of angels who are armed and who fend off every threat, including the sharp stones on the path and the snakes and lions that lay in wait. And I call this royal treatment, because this is, right? This is royal treatment for sons and daughters of the Most High God. And of course, I was talking about angels, and I had to think to myself, all right, so how do we preach about angels? And maybe that's another series, right? But this verse is familiar to those of us who know that moment where Jesus is tempted. This psalm is used against Jesus. Do you remember this moment in the temptation in the desert in Matthew 4? Matthew 4, verse 6, the devil quotes this line, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And in this moment, he's inviting Christ to be arrogant. He says, if you throw yourself down, test God's protection. He'll pick you up. You're the son of God. And again, as Jesus is being arrested in Matthew 26, one of his disciples draws his sword against the mob. And Jesus says, put your sword away. If you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. And if I wanted to, God would put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. At each of these moments... Christ rejects the assistance of angels for the sake of his self-advantage or for his power. Even though he cried tears of anguish at the thought of his painful death, he chose God's way and rejected the thought of an easy escape. And there are moments when Christ does receive the help of angels, but it's only at times of great need. At the end of his temptation in Matthew 4, we're told that angels came and attended him. In Luke's account of the night before his betrayal, in Luke 22, there is that moment where he prays that famous prayer, right? Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. And there's this beautiful moment where Luke records that an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. I didn't remember that until I read this story again. Christ in Gethsemane, praying, crying in anguish. Luke records it as sweating tears of blood. And there's an angel by his side who strengthens him. I think the scene on the Mount of Olives is extraordinary for even in the presence of an angel, Christ's anguish is still real and deep. And he prays earnestly. Psalm 91 offers a promise of safe places and safe journeys But in each case, we're safe because God is an attentive protector who is equal to every challenge. 
Even in this promise of angelic help, this strength is offered in the midst of real need. We're still exposed. As 2 Corinthians has it, we're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. Psalm 91 is a reminder to us that we are not alone. All right. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is a very strange moment. Um, At the end of the psalm, this is a surprise. The voice changes. And if you read my email, I realize that I kind of anticipated the surprise of this psalm. Um, But this is the moment where the speech that was directed to God is reversed, and now God speaks. And he speaks to the psalmist, and he speaks to the community. This is the direct speech of God in the form of a decree of assurance. It's as if God is responding to all of those words of trust from the last 13 verses. I think that this moment represents a paradox in our faith that we have talked about for the last eight weeks or so. That it's the transformed heart, it's the faithful community who can see God's faithfulness and who can see God's trustworthiness. That's why we pray, as Lyndall prayed, that we might have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that fully know, right? It's not to call God near, but it's to see that he is already near. God is our protector in the midst of danger. In response to the faithful claim of 13 verses that God is near, God at this point responds and says, Yep, yes I am. And if you see here, God's responsiveness is pretty comprehensive. I will deliver, I will protect, I will answer, I will be with you, I will rescue, I will honour, I will satisfy, I will show you. The promises that have been spoken in human speech are now verified in God's voice. And I was thinking at the end here that maybe the most striking thing for a modern reader is in this opening address at the top of it. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him, I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. And I read this so many times, and maybe this doesn't strike you as strange as it struck me. But it seems as if it's because of the commitment of the psalmist that God responds. Do you see this? Because he loves me, I will rescue him. Now, I I thought, okay, wait a minute. This isn't right. This doesn't work with the Old Testament assurance. And of course, this kind of language is in the psalms. It's the kind of love that is really an act of trust that's born out of God's first love. So this is my three things to pay attention to in Old Testament when you read something like this. Uh, Number one, Deuteronomy 10. And I don't have that up here. In which God reminds Israel that it was his commitment and not man's that came first. The Lord set his affection on you, Israel. So in this way, we can read this line, because he loves me, as always being preceded by God's loving choice. Number two, 
um, Exodus 34, in which God's name is known only because God makes it known. The Lord came down in the cloud and proclaimed his name to Moses. So this acknowledging me, the acknowledgement of God comes only out of God's revelation to his people. And number three, this moment here where it says, he will call on me. At this moment, I think we're reminded of the core relationship between humankind and God, between Israel and God, and now between us and the God on whom we call. The speaker is ultimately helpless, and God is the helper. This trusting bond is between the one who calls and the one who can answer. And any bond such as this is a bond that is born out of grace. Because, as so often happens in the psalm, it is God who chooses to answer. So those are my three. When reading Old Testament, God loved first, God revealed himself first, and it is God who answers. But that's the Old Testament, right? Okay, so what about us? And I know that's a get-out-of-jail-free card, Dave. Don't smile at me like that. But it's good in this psalm. I, I think that Psalm 91 is easily read simply as a picture of God's nearness and trustworthiness, right? It's the record of a traveller in the midst of trouble who can confidently say that God is our refuge and sure companion. But us, right? We know that God does more than just speak. In fact, we know that God did more than just protect. See, for a people who did not call out, who did not deserve grace, who did not demonstrate sufficient faith, who did not live lives of righteousness, for those people who were still sinners, Christ came and Christ died. And so the end of this psalm, I think, must be reimagined through the death of Christ. His famous words in Ephesians 2 verse 4 remind us that because of his great love for us, right? Not because he loves me, but because of his, that is, Christ's great love or God's great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead. It is by grace you have been saved. And we're lucky here because that is the very last word of Psalm 91, the word salvation. It's the last word in the Hebrew. It's the last word that I'm going to think about in this whole series. It is a promise that was only sometimes evident to the saints in the Old Testament. It was a shadow of what was to come. It was a promise of which they had heard. As Lewis would say, this word was just notes in a tune that they had not yet heard in its fullness. For the psalmist... As for us, I think that the great confidence of this psalm is in the fact that it is not us who is speaking this word, but God. The very last word he speaks is one of caring protection, of refuge, of saving grace. I think that this is such an extraordinary moment of hope that it's not up to us to speak the word of salvation, but God. And the word that was spoken by God does become flesh, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God's nearness that is anticipated in Psalm 91 was made flesh in the person of Christ. 
The hope of Psalm 91 is God's companionship and his never-ending faithfulness. But we know that hope by a different name. Emmanuel, God with us. Death is overcome. That long life that is promised in Psalm 91 has been stretched out to eternity. And that salvation is revealed in the person of Christ. And this is cause for praise. So we get to do communion now, and I think this is an utterly appropriate opportunity. And I don't know how Lyndall is going to lead this. I'm happy to... She doesn't know either. I'm happy to hand it over to you, but would you mind if I just prayed really briefly? But we want to thank you that uh, in the Psalms we can see a record of a people who spoke to you and who heard from you. But we want to thank you that in the Psalms we can see a language that covers despair through hope, shame through glory. God, we thank you that we have this record of a people who were striving to understand what it looked like to be loved by a God who was near. And Lord, we thank you for this psalm and for its promise of hope and salvation and the echo and shadow that that is of the salvation that we have in Christ. God, we thank you that we can read these words with new eyes, with ears to hear, with hearts to fully know. God, we thank you that you speak to us, that you speak to us through these words, that you speak to us through one another, that you reveal yourself through your spirit, through the person of Christ. God, we thank you that you are always speaking and that as we walk with you daily, as we speak with you daily, as we converse with one another and as we seek you and your righteousness, that you will continue to be near, that you are our companion. God with us. Thank you.